0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in European Politics. I'm Tim Jones and my guest today is Christine Abley, author of The Russia Sanctions, The Economic Response to Russia's Invasion of Ukraine, published today by Cambridge University Press. February will mark the 10th anniversary of Russia's seizure of Ukrainian territory and two years since its full-scale invasion. While serious military assistance from Ukraine's allies has been gradual and cautious even since 2022, retaliatory sanctions have been impressive. Quote, the sanctions imposed by Russia beginning in late winter 2022 were sweeping, historic, and rolled out with stunning rapidity, writes Christine Abley. But until now, most Russians have been insulated from their effects. As the war reaches an attritional stalemate and Putin waits for Allied resolve to fracture, the sanctions and their lagged effects are taking on critical importance. Christine Abley is an assistant professor at the New England Law School in Boston. Previously, she taught at Boston University School of Law after a career at Massachusetts law firms specializing in business litigation and international trade and sanctions law. While she has published papers on sanctions, food and sports law, The Russia Sanctions is her first book. Christine, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi, thanks so much.
0: Let's start with the fact that you've been working in this field for many years. What made you decide to get your thoughts and experience into a book form and why now?
1: Yeah, so certainly, as you said, I worked in international trade and sanctions law. So I was very much aware of these issues Um, since moving into academia. I've also been writing on these issues. So these are certainly um, issues that I've been attuned to and following for a while now. And so When Russia invaded Ukraine, it became very apparent that this was going to be a really historic and unique sanctions response, right? It became... Evident even in the first week that this was going to be an, a really notable event in the history of sanctions, and it was notable because of the sheer number of countries involved. It was notable that it took place in a multilateral fashion outside of the United Nations Security Council, but there were there were so many jurisdictions that joined together, including the the EU, the UK, Canada, Australia, and um, the United States, to to signal um, their condemnation of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and to reduce the resources available to Russia to wage war right? I, I, I also thought that what was notable was the, the significance of the sanctions um, against such a prominent player in the world economy, right? Russia is very much involved in the world energy markets. It's a major energy supplier. Um, and the extent to which the sanctions were targeted against major Russian targets, like, for example, banks, um, whether by correspondent banking sanctions or um, through full blocking sanctions, right? And so all of these factors, really made it apparent that this was a historic sanctions response. And also as the the months developed, right, that this was an ongoing sanctions response where all these jurisdictions would continue to seek to improve the sanctions response, refine the sanctions response and continue the sanctions response. So it was very soon apparent that this was a a really historic event. And uh, that's what really led me to Uh, to write this book. What I wanted to do was to create a book that was accessible to the general interest reader to provide a background on what sanctions were, on what uh, international trade measures were, provide some historical and economic background um, for the reader who was very much interested in these topics, but maybe hadn't been following them for an extended length of time to provide that background information, and then to describe what in fact happened when Russia invaded Ukraine, Ukraine what were these sanctions measures, um, and how did they affect both Russia and the world and the world economy at large?
0: Did you have experience in your life, in your personal life, of people who were outside the business but were well-informed people who you felt didn't understand sanctions sufficiently? Was that was that a motivator?
1: Um, I think so, right? Because I think it's it's very interesting to people, and they read a lot in the newspaper about the various sanctions response and what what the s- sanctions are individually. But I think that there's a real value in seeing what the sanctions response has been collectively right and understanding all the sanctions measures as a whole um, and also against the backdrop of recent history concerning Russia and Ukraine. Right. Because I think that all these sanctions can't be understood and the Russian invasion of Ukraine can't be understood without the backdrop of Russia's early invasion of Crimea. Um, and so I think that what I saw as, as my value add here was providing this historical and economic background, but doing so in a comprehensive manner so that the reader, right, who may have seen a newspaper article here and there and been, been following it could get a, a better bird's eye view, a 30,000 foot view of what
0: the historical and economic situation was. As, as a background to the conversation, could you give us a history of the use of sanctions, especially how they've developed and differentiated between targeted and their comprehensive forms?
1: Certainly. So sanctions and trade embargoes have been used by various jurisdictions um, for centuries. And what my book really focuses on in the background section is their use, um, their expanding use post-World War II, especially in peacetime. Um, It focuses in large part on the use of sanctions by the United States in this way. In the United States um, and other jurisdictions, but certainly the United States have enacted sanctions um, against certain regions or targets. Increasingly in the post World War II era, even in peacetime, um, certainly the United Nations also enact sanctions through its Security Council. Um, other jurisdictions enact their own sanctions as well. Um, so we've seen in the last uh, few decades. Uh, A market increase in the number of sanctions imposed. Um, And we also see the rise of what's called smart sanctions or targeted sanctions rather than comprehensive sanctions. So comprehensive sanctions are sanctions which are really broad-based and are which are um, enacted against a particular country or geographic region as a whole. Um, But these carry right, a comprehensive sanction regime carries with it certain drawbacks. Um, And one of those is that it can trigger really devastating humanitarian consequences. So this was observed, um, for example, with respect to the comprehensive sanctions against Iraq in the 1990s. um, There were horrible humanitarian consequences. And so these harms have led to the development of Uh, an increased use of targeted or smart sanctions, where instead of a jurisdiction being uh, faced with sanctions at large, uh, individual entities or individuals are made subject to sanctions themselves rather than the entire region. So those developed in an attempt to limit the humanitarian harms and to Uh, more finely target those particular parties, which the sanctioning jurisdiction might want to um, designate.
0: Can you give an example of the the first example of uh, comprehensive sanctions? In fact, the first example of sanctions. And what was the first tentative example of more modern targeted sanctions?
1: Certainly, it wasn't the first, but when we think of comprehensive sanctions, some examples that you might think of are, for example, those sanctions that are enacted in wartime, right? I think that historically, um, comprehensive sanctions have been used to prohibit uh, financial transactions or trading with an enemy. Certainly other more modern comprehensive sanctions regimes are those that were imposed um, against Iraq. We also see nowadays, right, what we might term comprehensive sanctions regimes in place with respect to um, North Korea, for example, Um, right? Financial transactions are prohibited Uh, fairly broadly and largely with respect to um, that particular country vis-a-vis the United States. Um, There are certain exceptions, but by and large, that is... Uh, can be more accurately termed a comprehensive sanctions regime. The United States maintains a a whole slew of sanctions regimes, and some of them certainly are much more targeted in nature. Um, For example, the United States has um, a malicious cyber attackers um, sanctions regime. Right. And it's intended to designate uh, malicious cyber actors. Um, right. So that's an example of a targeted sanctions regime, because what the United States does is they um, place on their specially designated nationals list, the SDN list, the specially designated nationals and block persons list. Uh, they indicate that a particular party is subject to sanctions by placing them on that list, and that's a that particular target is made subject to sanctions.
0: Let's talk about the specifically about the Russian sanctions. You make the point throughout the book that the Russian sanctions are technically targeted, but because regulated parties tend towards overcompliance, and this is a point you make throughout the book, uh, quote, the implementation of targeted sanctions often resembles comprehensive ones in practice. Can you talk us through that?
1: So the book makes the point, as you say, that when enough targets are designated within a particular jurisdiction, right? At some point, the line between targeted and comprehensive sanctions becomes blurred because when there are enough targets that are right listed and made subject to sanctions in a particular jurisdiction, and when those particular targets are significant enough, then a party in a sanctioning nation who is looking at a particular jurisdiction and deciding, and whether or not to do business or enter into a financial transaction with a party in that sanctioned area, then their risk calculus changes, right? Their risk calculus becomes more like that in effect when they're dealing with a comprehensive jurisdiction, uh, comprehensively sanctioned jurisdiction, where then even if a particular activity is not itself prohibited, the party in the sanctioning nation may decide it's not worth the risk of incurring a sanctions violation by unintentionally uh, running afoul, right? And so afoul of the sanctions um, prohibitions. And so a party in a sanctioning country might decide that it's not worth a complicated risk analysis, extended fact-finding endeavor to uh, decide whether or not this financial transaction is worthwhile. They may just stop doing business with a particular jurisdiction wholesale. So the book points out that the sanctions against Russia right, are not comprehensive in nature. There's no prohibition that says uh, right, US parties or any other party in any other of the sanctioning, juris- uh, the sanctioning jurisdictions, there's nothing that says that they wholesale cannot do business with Russia. However, there are a whole variety of sanctions against individual Russian targets, including um, major Russian banks. And so a party in a sanctioning country, right, may decide that it's not worth the risk of a sanctions violation, even if a particular transaction is permitted, right? And it may not be worth the resources to a party in a sanctioning country to Find out, in fact, whether or not that particular transaction is, in fact, permitted, right? With respect to Russia, we have a lot of targeted sanctions, the effects of which at some point come closer to resembling a comprehensive sanctions regime, even when one has not, in fact, been put into effect.
0: And yet there seems to be quite a lot of quite a lot of examples of businesses, particularly German companies getting around the sanctions by booking trade through uh, Central Asia. Does that undermine the other compliance issue or is that just a problem with the drafting of the sanctions do you think?
1: Yeah, so certainly I think that it's really interesting the point you make because it Points to another problem of sanctions, right? That of sanctions evasion. So when we talk about overcompliance, we think about a party who's uh, in a sanctioning country who's very much interested in abiding by the sanctions regulations and following the law, right? And they may go too far. They may over comply with sanctions and not. Uh, carry out those transactions, which they would be permitted to do. And so sanctions evasion is is the opposite side of that, right? Where we have a party who's not interested uh, in abiding by the, sometimes the letter, sometimes the spirit of the sanctions regulations. And so they take measures to avoid the sanctions. So sanctions evasion, it's really interesting because it can refer to two different sorts of activities right so there's sanctions evasion in the sense that well, parties may choose to engage in different sorts of business activities so that they don't run afoul of the sanctions, right? So Russia may choose um, trading partners in China or India or so forth, right? And so there's a restructuring of trade in a way that's not technically illegal, but does undermine the sanctions. And then there's sanctions evasion in the sense that you have parties in sanctioning jurisdictions who are taking on illegal activities right and and doing things that are that directly violate the sanctions prohibitions um but they are hiding the fact of that illegal behavior through a number of ways so one of the ways which you mention is this idea of transshipment right where a particular export may be prohibited from going either to Russia or to a um, Russian military end user. Um, Sometimes those products are shipped, and then we've seen an an increasing uh, incidence of this happening. They're shipped through um, certain countries, oftentimes in Central Asia, where the product is not, in fact, intended for use in that country, but now they're serving as transshipment hubs to Russia. Right. Which is it's not permitted. That's a violation of the sanctions regulations. But it's easier to hide the ultimate origin of a product when a transshipment hub is used. Um, we've also seen widespread evasion with respect to the um, uh, sanctions on oil um, relative to Russia. So there's an import, there's, there's a ban on the import of Russian origin crude oil into the EU, into the U.S., into right, the other sanctioning jurisdictions as well. And there's also a price cap that has been placed uh, right. Which prohibits um, parties from G7 nation, G7 nations from providing services for the shipment of Russian origin crude oil when it's priced above um, the the price cap, and so we've seen widespread evasion of that price price cap as well, both in terms of Russia assembling its own fleet of ships, right, and trying not to engage the services of parties from G seven nations, but then also in terms of illegal activities happening where um, we see right we see actions uh, being undertaken in violation of the sanctions regulations and parties from G7 nations providing those services in violation of the price cap.
0: Towards the end of the book, you you actually flag what, what you see as being a potential problem from overcompliance, um, especially with regard to US sanctions and the danger of banks becoming force multipliers of, of this overcompliance. Can you talk us through this uh, this problem?
1: Certainly. It's something we've seen um, definitely with respect to comprehensive sanctions regimes. It's um, definitely a problem with respect to Iran and the provision of humanitarian um, goods and services. Um, And the idea of overcompliance, as we are talking about, is that when the sanctions risks and the risks of a violation become severe enough, right, risk-averse parties may decide to stop doing business with a particular sanctioned jurisdiction entirely. Uh, This problem is particularly severe with respect to banks. These are institutions which are risk-averse, right, which have an interest in abiding by uh, laws and regulations, but also in uh, making sure that they don't uh, incur a sanctions violation. And so they have an incentive to perhaps over comply. Um, and they are force multipliers because when they stop doing business in a particular jurisdiction, um, the ability of their customers uh, and the parties in that particular jurisdiction to affect financial transactions becomes affected. So certainly uh, the tendency of banks to overcomply with sanctions and other relevant regulations has an effect on sanctioned jurisdictions where now the provision of financial services, even when it's for permitted activities such as the provision of humanitarian goods or services, becomes affected through this idea of overcompliance through the idea of de-risking where banks are taking and other parties are taking measures to reduce their regulatory
0: risk. Now, I, I use that quote at the, in my introduction where you talked about the sanctions being sweeping, historic and rolled out with stunning rapidity, but I'd like to consider some of the rail politic around the imposition of sanctions from 2014 onwards, particularly in Europe, which is the thing I know better, Um, It seems to me that a lot of the sanctions regime really came piecemeal, was pushed by political considerations, and each time they saw the Russians retreat, they did more. So, for example, the Ukrainian armed forces were in no shape to retake Crimea and eastern Donbass in 2014, and the West was very split in terms of engagement with Putin. And then, even though the sanctions against Crimea were comprehensive, those against Russia were very targeted at the time. Which this seemed to be the only real, feasible response, politically feasible response. But after February 22, it felt as though the sanctioning parties just kept pushing the envelope as Russia's weakness became clearer. And even today, you know that there's a new package to to ban Russian diamonds. Do you think that's a fair? characterization of what happened? And is there a differentiation there between the Europeans and the Americans?
1: I think you do make a good point that there is this clear differentiation between the sanctions that were imposed following Russia's invasion of Crimea and the 2022 sanctions that were imposed following its general invasion of Ukraine, right? I think that the 2022 sanctions were this massive sanctions response that was enacted and was fundamentally different from what was the the sanctions that were placed on Russia following its invasion of Crimea. And I think what was also notable about the 2022 sanctions were that the United States, the EU, and all the other sanctioning jurisdictions were very much in agreement about what the sanctions response should be, Uh, with respect to Russia. And that coordination, right, there certainly have been, uh, the sanctions haven't been universally imposed at every single step. Um, For example, with respect to the crude oil ban, the US and the EU were not perfectly matched in terms of timing, imposing their own crude oil bans. Um, But by and large, for the most part, uh, the sanctions, uh, both in the initial package and then all the rounds of sanctions that have followed, have been coordinated in an extraordinary uh, manner, right? there's There's been uh, a huge number of sanctions regulations and they've been enacted across um, multiple jurisdictions. And so I do think that we're seeing something fundamentally different from the 2014 Uh, and subsequent uh, until 2022 measures against Russia, because, right, these are not piecemeal. The sanctioning jurisdictions really are seeking to mount a massive response. They're seeking to um, really cut into Russian revenue. And there is this political commitment to do so, even where there is cost and political cost to the sanctioning jurisdictions themselves, right? So the EU, um, as you know, is a, is a, was a immediately pre-invasion a, a major consumer of, of Russian energy supplies. And so things like the crude oil ban right, comes at a cost to the EU itself. But there is this political will to respond to the, the shocking general invasion of Ukraine through the use of um, these economic weapons.
0: I do wonder, though, whether the Europeans would have uh, come down as, as hard as they did on piped Russian gas if the Russians hadn't actually cut it off themselves first.
1: Right, certainly, right. So um, certainly there's not um, a import ban on LNG into um, the European Union, although the EU has just um, voted to allow member states to deny Russian, origin LNG, um, right, storage capacity in their individual member countries. But certainly, I think that the lessons that the EU saw in terms of Russia limiting energy into the EU, right, that 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 helps influence sanction strategy going forward, because I think that what um, the EU and its member countries have seen throughout 2022 is that Russia is not a reliable supplier it's not a reliable trading partner even if technically speaking there's not a particular restriction with res- right in any particular area i think that this demonstrates that going forward even where there's not particularly a um, not a particular sanctions provision, perhaps on point. The the broader view and the broader takeaway here is that I think the EU and the other sanctioning jurisdictions will be moving away from Russia as a trading partner um, because they understand and they've observed that it's it's not a reliable trading partner anymore right because it's not just the sanctions that are affecting the the economic relationship between russia and the sanctioning countries it's these political these political factors as well
0: you argue in the book that sanctions on individuals would would have been less effective if they had not been accompanied by sanctions against critical entities and institutions but also that freezes and seizures were long overdue step against corruption. So again, going back to 2014, do you think that individual targeting, leaving out those institutions at a much earlier stage could have had a a preemptive or or knock-on effect from rich Russians onto the regime?
1: So I don't think that by themselves, they would have been enough to prevent the Russian invasion of Ukraine, right? I think certainly By that time following the Russian invasion of Crimea, um, Putin was already well established enough and amassed enough power that a sanctions regime solely against oligarchs would have had the effect of dislodging him from power. I think certainly it would have been important for other purposes um, such as helping to root out corruption. I think it could have helped reduce the resources available to the Russian government and to the oligarchs. It certainly would have been important to carry out as soon as possible, right because of the extent of corruption and the importance of dealing with corruption. Um, I think that the fact that they these sanctions were enacted in 2022, was a very important step towards addressing issues of corruption um, and also financial transparency measures that are enacted in sanctioning jurisdictions are important to addressing this issue as well. And so I think both all of these measures and increased enforcement of sanctions and also of Uh, corruption in other areas and financial transparency. I think all these measures are going to be helpful in addressing corruption, which is linked to Russia, but not solely limited to Russia. It's not solely limited to Putin and the oligarchs. It's certainly relevant um, with respect to other jurisdictions as well. So I think these are very positive developments on a broader scale.
0: Well, one critical aspect we haven't yet discussed is extraterritoriality, something you discuss uh, throughout the book. Can you explain this concept, its history, and its application?
1: Um, the extraterritorial application of sanctions, there are a number of different definitions, but generally it refers to the application of sanctions outside of a sanctioning jurisdiction. When we say outside, I mean geographically that a con- some sort of conduct has occurred outside the geographic borders of that sanctioning country um, and to parties who are not nationals of that country. With respect to sanctions, this often occurs because there's some sort of nexus with the sanctioning jurisdiction. For example, um, in the US, oftentimes it occurs through the use of the US dollar because the way that US dollars are cleared and settled happens through transiting the US financial system, oftentimes in New York. Sanctions can be applied extraterritorially as well through the use of secondary sanctions. And these sanctions are imposed on parties not from sanctioning jurisdictions, so they're not themselves bound to observe um, sanctions that are imposed, but they're designated and made subject to sanctions based on their support of parties who are themselves sanctioned. Right, So these are some of the ways in which sanctions can be applied outside of a sanctioning jurisdiction like the United States to parties who are not themselves nationals of that particular country.
0: And the Europeans have always really disliked this uh, extraterritoriality. And I remember the long-running dispute with the Americans over the Helmsberg Act. But you make a really interesting point that the, the so-called Brussels effect Essentially, is Europeans applying extraterritoriality, the application of the GDPR regime, for example, antitrust rulings, and even you 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 spotted uh, an extraterritorial aspect of the Eighth Package of Sanctions.
1: Yeah. So certainly I think that it's going to be really interesting to see in the future um, whether other other jurisdictions besides the United States move in this direction of the extraterritorial application of laws and regulations, particularly with respect to sanctions. So the United States um, has long been a user of extraterritorial sanctions. um, And as you state right to the to the objections of other jurisdictions um, such as the EU Uh, The EU enacted a a blocking statute to um, help counteract the effects of the or help counteract the extraterritorial application of U.S. sanctions. Other jurisdictions have blocking statutes as well. But we perhaps do see um, both with respect to the sanctions and in other areas as well, um, a growing tendency of other jurisdictions to perhaps consider the extraterritorial use Of application of laws, right? So in the EU's eighth package of sanctions, that particular uh, sanctions package allowed for a new listing criterion, and it allowed parties to be made subject to sanctions who facilitated the circumvention of sanctions. So that could apply to citizens of EU member countries, but it could apply to others as well. Um, and beyond the sanctions realm, we also see, for example, with respect to China, the national security law relative to Hong Kong. Article 38 of that law claims jurisdiction over non-citizens of China and Hong Kong, um, even outside of those geographic areas. So we see perhaps a growing trend towards increasing extraterritorial application of laws, maybe in this and other areas, um, but it remains to be seen how long-lasting or how prevalent that trend will be.
0: Yes. So my final question is, do you think there is more that could still be done um, after these many, many rounds of uh, sanctions packages? Or do you think that once the diamond ban is implemented, they're essentially at their limit and really people then have to wait to see the uh, application or the to feel the sanctions being felt in, in Russia. And then related to that, do you think that the Europeans and the Americans have learned lessons over the last eight years of sanctions that will be applicable in, in future events?
1: So I think the next major challenge with respect to the sanctions and sanctions enforcement is dealing with the current enforcement challenges raised by the price cap on Russian origin crude oil. So the price cap uh, is subject to widespread evasion. And so I think that it's an opportunity for the sanctioning nations to increase the effectiveness of the sanctions against Russia by examining how they enforce the price gap. So certainly I think that some of the Problems are are difficult to address, like Russia assembling its own shadow fleet or turning towards relationships and and trading partnerships with non-sanctioning nations, right? Which which are are harder to address. And so, in the future, certainly, I think what we'll see is um, increased enforcement against those parties who violate the price cap by involving nationals from G seven countries in transactions in oil above the price cap, and what will be interesting to see is whether the sanctioning jurisdictions turn increasingly perhaps to the use of secondary sanctions to address some of these issues where Russia is turning to parties not from sanctioning nations uh, in order to uh, affect financial transactions. I think it'll be interesting to see whether more secondary sanctions are in fact used by the secondary by the sanctioning jurisdictions. I think, uh, to turn to the second question, I think that one thing that the US and the EU and the other sanctioning nations have learned from the sanctions response is the importance of coordination um, in the importance of uh, multilateral partners in the sanctions response. I think that that's a major reason why the sanctions have been effective um, as they have to the extent they've been, is the fact that the EU, the US, the UK, that these uh, different uh, sanctioning powers who are major players in the world economy right have been able to limit russian access to things like the use of their currencies to access to their financial systems and so i think that this is something that we're going to see continue into the future i think it's a lesson that the sanctioning powers appreciate and understand is that by coordinating with other jurisdictions the effectiveness of sanctions is is very much, uh,
0: increased. Well, to finish as usual, because this is a podcast about books, I've asked my guests to recommend two, one broadly from her field and one personal choice. So Christine, what have you chosen?
1: Yes. So from uh, the field, I really enjoyed *Backfire*: How Sanctions Reshape the World Against U.S. Interests. That's by Agathe de Daray, and it describes how the use of sanctions by the U.S. has had unintended consequences. Um, it's it's very interesting. I definitely recommend it. And then broadly, I really enjoyed *The Box* by Mark Levinson. It's a very good history of um, container shipping and how the shipping container developed and really how it's revolutionized world trade. So that's, I've enjoyed it very much. And it it really uh, helped shape how I think about world trade and understand
0: um, its history. Well, that one is a great tip. Thank you. So today I've been talking to Christine Abley about the Russia sanctions published today by Cambridge University Press. Christine, thanks very much for coming on.
1: Thank you so much. I appreciate it.